Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 71 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Season's greetings to you. Today, as I sit here, it's the 22nd of December, 2022. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the, the next few days of fun frolics and festivities right this week i am going to be talking to zane mccormick now, zane is an ex-police officer from devon and cornwall constabulary down in the sunny southwest of england and uh, he tells a fascinating story of uh, his police career which sadly uh, ended having had a quite a catastrophic um mental breakdown and uh, he tells the story. It's uh, really quite um, shocking uh, when you hear it. And um, I know that you should never uh, equate mental health with um, physical appearance. I know there's no link there whatsoever. And, um, you know, just because you are uh, physically strong doesn't necessarily mean that you are mentally strong equally just because you are maybe of a sort of a less physical disposition, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're less less mentally strong. But it's quite um, you know apparent when you see Zane, he's this big strapping uh, guy, uh, ex sort of uh, semi-professional rugby player. And, um, and I think that the point I'm trying to make here, I suppose really slightly clumsily, is that mental health can affect anyone um, at any time, um, obviously, if there are certain things going on in your life. Um, and, you know, I suppose the point I'd be making to men out there is that uh, you are uh, not alone if you are struggling with your mental health. Uh, there are lots of people, including myself, who've been there and uh, understand it really, really well now. And if you're sitting there rather smugly thinking, well, that's never going to be me, I would say, well, just hold that thought because uh, it might be in the future. So you'll hear uh, Zane's story in a minute. Before we do, just a couple of things. Uh, this week, I broke the uh, significant milestone of 100,000 uh, downloads for the podcast, which is brilliant. I got a really nice email from the uh, podcast hosting company saying, you know, fantastic achievement. Um, you know, you're in a very small minority of people who ever reach this and all of this kind of stuff. And um, I also got uh, some really great stats sent to me from a site called Listen Notes. And um, it shows you where your podcast is globally. Um, and it's in the top 2% globally, uh, which sounds amazing, doesn't it? Out of... Um, 152,391,416 podcasts. Oh my God. Uh, so that sounds that sounds really cool, doesn't it? Just to know that you're in the sort of top 2% globally. But because I'm a bit of a stats geek, uh, in the top 2% of a number as big as that is, uh, yeah, maybe not as um, amazing as... Uh, as if you were in the top 2% out of 100, I suppose. But you know what? Top 2% globally, that's all right. I'll take that. Really, really pleased. And, um, you know, so thanks ever so much for uh, all your support, for listening to it, and um, all the lovely messages I get very regularly. Every single week I get lots of messages from lots of people. Um, if you want to contact me, um, you can contact me at ianiain at ikindiakilo hyphen insights ikinsights.com and uh yeah if you want to sort of ask for something or um 
propose a new guest or um, just to generally tell me your story. I'm, I'm always fascinated to read people's stories about, you know, how they're getting on or the good or very often the not so good things that happen to them in their policing career. So um, one other thing just to touch on before we get into the interview is uh, to the great credit, I'm signed as if I'm having a proper bromance, don't I, with um, with Mark Riley, the commissioner of the Met. But to his great credit, he has pushed back against this. It sounds as if they were under a lot of pressure to step in and start driving ambulances during the ambulance dispute. And to his great credit, he and the rest of the MPCC have said, on your bike, because we're not doing it. And um, yeah, the language he was using as well was uh, was really refreshing to hear. Uh, he described it as uh, uh, it was galling for police officers uh, who are not allowed to strike to, to, to be expected to, to drive ambulances. Um, and, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, haven't we, with various guests and, and me banging on about it. But, you know, we're already, the police are already picking up far, far, far too much work from other agencies. And, um, you know, for the government or anyone else, for that matter, to, to seriously suggest that the police can now start driving bloody ambulances around as well is just a massive, massive piss tick. And uh, I described in my book and previously, I think, on the podcast about how back in 1990, I, as a fresh-faced probationer, um, stupidly volunteered to be a paramedic on the 1990 London Ambulance Service dispute that went on for many, many months. And I spent 12-hour days as a paramedic um, when I use that term very, very loosely, because I think we probably caused more damage uh, and harm than we actually solved or, or prevented. Um, it was a really grueling period of my career, uh, emotionally draining, physically draining, and uh, I would not want to do it again. And uh, since that time, I've got an unbelievable respect for paramedics because I think they've got a really, really hard job. So, well done, Sir Mark. Do we need to get a room, you and I? Anyway, right, let's get on to the uh, interview. Morning, Zane. Morning, how are you? I'm very well. Hang on, and I'll get my video up and we can even see me. Hey, there he is. Look at that handsome chap. <laughs> uh. I'm really uh, I'm really pleased that we were having this, this uh, chat today because, um, yeah, LinkedIn is an amazing thing, isn't it? My yeah. goodness, you you end up sort of stumbling across all sorts of fascinating people, don't you? Yeah. And uh, yeah, you are one of those fascinating people. So uh, yeah, welcome, welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Ian. And like you say, it's um yeah, we step out of our little police bubble, don't we? And all of a sudden, we're in the um the big wide world, and the, the people we're bumping into, you know, that yeah. I know so many fascinating stories. Um to tell so yeah so just to, just get i'll get my apologies in early um if you hear what sounds like a building site in the background then uh that's because our house basically is a building site so um if you get random uh builders shouting at each other um they never speak to it they never you never talk to each other in a normal voice do they, they have to shout <laughs> at the top of their voice even if they're standing right beside each other and um, yeah, a, a motley collection of power tools as well. So if you, if any of that goes on, then I apologise, but hopefully it'll be okay. Yeah, no, yes. it may just be the odd Amazon delivery popping in. It's that time of year again. So excellent. So just to kind of explain how we ended up chatting to each other, um, I saw a couple of posts on LinkedIn from you, uh, which I find really intriguing, and. Um, interesting and i thought this sounds like somebody i definitely need to get on the podcast to kind of hear their story so if you kind of briefly introduce yourself um and kind of just sort of like a 15 second introduction in terms of who you are background what you're doing and then we'll dive into we'll go right back to before you joined the job and we'll talk about your police career and then we'll talk about what you're doing now if that sounds fantastic all right. Okay, well, my name is Zane McCormack. Um, I left the police um, in September this year um, to pursue becoming a full-time um, resilience coach, um, really preventing, looking at sort of trying to prevent 
burnout's been my thing really after having a few issues with it sort of um, a few years previous. So I took the plunge in September and um, here I am. Brilliant. Excellent. So uh, so let's get you, let's plug your business before we do anything else. So your business is The Assured Man, is that right? The, the Assured Man, that's it. So it is, um, like I say, it's resilience coaching for men. And that's basically it. And the um, with the premise being we're looking to prevent burnout before it starts um, with, you know, prevention absolutely being better than the cure. Brilliant. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk all about that um, later on in terms of uh, what took you into that sort of area of work and uh yeah so let's talk about but before we do anything else you've got such a cool name where did you get your name from it sounds like we are your we are parents like uh zane i mean that's a cool name isn't it <laughs> it's, either, it's either like it's it's like you need to be married to a warrior princess or something like it's, that it's, it's it really isn't that interesting um i say i'm a kiwi um all my father's family are irish um the mccormack's from from Tipperary, so it couldn't be any more irish than, than if, if you tried and they had a um, pretty boring sort of idea of how about naming there. It was always, you know, it was Patrick John, then John Patrick, Patrick John, John Patrick, um, <laughs> right down through the ages, um, the eldest son. Um, and my mother decided she was going to be the one that um, broke that. Um, and she tried <laughs> to find the most un-Irish name she could find. And, and I don't know where she found it, but she found she Zane. Succeeded. She succeeded. Yeah, she did. She found Zane. So <laughs> it's, um, it's Zane Patrick. She, um, she didn't, yeah. She, hit, hit, she she conceded on the middle name. Yeah, no, she yeah, knocked, it, knocked, it, knocked it out of the park there. No. Um, so on uh, you born in born in New Zealand then yeah born in New Zealand yes um came to the UK um, when I was 24 um bit of, bit of wanderlust had a few friends over here playing rugby said come over here there's you know there's a few opportunities um so it wasn't anything special but you know sort of had, had my airfare paid for and a bit of accommodation and a bit of work on the side as well so I came over here right. 23 years ago and which bit um, of which bit of New Zealand I I did a bit, a bit of traveling in New Zealand many years ago so Fox I Bay originally um where sorry Bay. Bay, so, right, okay. Yeah, so I grew up there. Um, pretty typical Kiwi upbringing. Um, beaches, rugby, bush, hunting, and the rest of it. Sort of really quite idyllic, really, looking back on it. But yeah. And, and you never uh, never went back? Uh, no. Anyway. No, no, I came over here. Initially, it was only supposed to be for a couple of years, traveling and, and to go back and, and get back on with it when I when I went home. But I um, met the um, the mother of my, my children. Right. Um, I've since divorced the mother of my children, but I still have them here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. so the, yeah. the children got, are here. So I've got, so that, I've got that T-shirt as well. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, it's a bit of an occupational hazard, isn't it? Yes. Well, it's kind of. I always said that uh, I never felt like a proper detective until I got divorced. So um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so well, um, you get initiated you... a little special club. Yeah. What What age were you when you joined the police then? I was and thirty. Thirty, right? Thirty. Late joiner then. No, I had. So, and, you know, part of the inspiration for what I'm doing now is I've spent, you know, I spent five years in the UK um, playing and coaching professionally. Um, before I right, okay. So, like, so I'm sort of drawing on sort of my, my, my background with, with the coaching, really, with what I'm doing now, sort of combining sort of the experiences I had over the, you know, the 16 years I was with, with the police to, with, with what I was doing before I joined. So it seems to be okay. a bit of a natural sort of. Right. So you were, did you, you played professionally as well as coached? I played semi professionally. Um, right. I was coaching as well. So I was running, um, I was, employed as, as development officers for the clubs I was playing for right. um so yeah so I was, I was, I was coaching full-time in schools coaching the um and then my last couple of seasons I was, I was a player coach at the clubs I was at so right. I was sort of combining all that and what part of the country was that in in the southwest down here in Devon Devon in Somerset yeah okay so so did you join um Devon and Cornwall police yes yeah no I was um yeah joined Devon and Cornwall police so and um so most of my career People that know the area um, in Mid and East Devon, so Exeter, Tiverton, mm -hmm. um, Exmouth, and, and and around there. Okay, good. So, what was it that any what was it that particularly propelled you to join the police as opposed to doing something else? It had all been something I'd, I'd wanted to do. The plan always was sort of you know spend a couple of years travelling and head back and, and, and apply when I go back to New Zealand. So, and I sort of found myself sort of in the UK, married, and I was working like I say, working for the clubs. I was working for Sporting England for a little bit as well. Um, and it was through the work with Sport England that I bumped into a um, um, youth offending officer right. um, with Devon and Cornwall. And you know, so I spoke, you know, he, he said to me, you know, usual story, you, you, you're big, we need you doing doors, why don't you um, join the police? Yeah. Um, and I said to him, I, I didn't think I was able to. And he um, he looked into it and came back to me a week later and said, look, here's the application form, get on with it. Yeah. You can. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I worked with quite I worked with quite a few Kiwis in um, in the Met Police um, as well as quite a few people from other commonwealth countries you know canadians and 
a few South Africans and yeah, it's um, integral real mixture. So, um, so yeah. So what year was that when you joined? You were thirty. That was two thousand six. Two thousand six. Right. Okay. So you ended up doing. I'm pretty much showing my terrible maths now. You ended up doing uh, what? Eighteen years then. Sixteen. Sixteen. <laughs> I told you my. I told you my maths was shit. You weren't. What? What? It wasn't financial investigation, was it? Ian, that you were on. <laughs> oh mate. Oh mate. I'm a nightmare. I'm good with words, not so good with numbers. But. Uh, <laughs> Oh God, just embarrass myself in front of uh, you know, forever on anybody yeah. who listens to this, they'll be listening to this, you know, they'll be digging this out of our archives in a hundred years' time. They'll be going, Oh god, the British police there's a reason why the, the, the exactly. there's, there's a reason why people thought the British police were a bunch of flawed, you know. But uh right, so so you joined where did you get first posted to? So Timberton, which is a um, little town in in, in um in Devon, which is you know quite close to my heart really. It was it was the um Timberton Rugby Club that threw me over here. Um, right. sort of 23 years ago. Right. So it's almost been like a little bit of a um, Bermuda Triangle, that town. It just keeps sort yeah. of um, pulling me back. Oh, gosh. So that must have been quite weird, actually, then, um, kind of joining uh, and starting as a police officer in a place that you're already very familiar with. You know, you would have known a lot of people, presumably. Well, you, you, you think so. But as we as we both know, you know, the, the people we come into contact with on a regular basis aren't the people that we come, in, you know, we come into contact with if you're, you're living regular lives. So yeah, that was yeah. quite an eye opener for me. So that you think you know a town until you police it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, everything that goes on that we don't see. That was the. Um, That's right. Yeah. Which is sometimes ignorant. You know, um, ignorance is bliss sometimes. I mean, I live in a, a rural uh, village uh, in the Midlands and. Um, I don't want to know what's going on around here, particularly. Um, I'd rather not. Ignorance is bliss, you know. And uh, people occasionally say to me, "Oh, yeah, you were in the police in, and um, and did you know so and so?" And I'll just go, "Stop, stop. I don't want to know. You know, I don't want to be walking down the street and bumping into someone, seeing them in the pub, and knowing that they're a drug dealer or something. I'm just not. I just don't care. You know, it's not that I don't care. I just don't want to really think about it when I'm at home. You know." No, exactly that, and then that's been the um the change, you know, you know, just stepping back from it all and not being involved in the day to day issues with with policing, knowing all the local dramas, who's who's falling out with who, yeah, yeah. you know, who the targets are, and, mm. and and that's been nice, just being able to walk. You know, I've I've been quite lucky as well. I've always lived in Somerset, so I've worked in Devon, but I've lived in Somerset, right. so just just that removal from yeah. Um, yeah. From where I um from where I work was always always quite a small market town to it, and so you know, yeah yeah. So just describe. I mean, so I've never I've never worked in. I only I only ever worked in the big city forces. That I worked in London, and then I worked in <clears throat> sort of the West Midlands, Birmingham, and Coventry. Um, so I've never done rural policing, um, or semi-rural policing, whatever. Because I know Devon Cornwall's a real mix, isn't it? Um, presumably where you were first posted was that did that kind of cover quite a lot of rural areas as well? Yeah, a massive patch. Um, I, I forget the stats now, but I know a blue light run from end to end was about 45, 50 minutes. Really? Wow. Yeah. So, and yeah, we'd parade regularly with three, four, and that's covering three towns, um, yeah. each town sort of around sort of 15,000 people each. Yeah. God, so every, every town with its own nighttime economy, um, every town with its own issues, um, with its own sort of, um, yeah. Plus, then you have all the rural crime going on as well. So yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it was a. It's certainly it's it's different. We have a lot of um. We have a lot of you know different calls. Very very popular force for transferees. So we have a lot of people coming down from West Mids, mm. um, and from and from the Met. I mean, the, the Met are quite nice actually. They they blend in quite well. You you never know they were it worked for the Met. Really? Um, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I sense I sense the sarcasm slash slash irony. I bet you they yeah, never no, ever. But, but, I bet, yeah, I, that, I bet that, you they that, never that, ever said the phrase when I was in the Met. Oh, gee, yeah. No, but but yeah, you know, it's but but it's nice to come down. And, and what's actually nice is sort of when they they realise that it's you know that they're, they're having to spin their um their policing head one eighty with how how they operating. Yeah, you definitely. know, they they don't they don't have a um you know. I imagine I imagine some of them just um, never really sort of make that transition. I imagine it must be like a complete, must really mess with your head, actually, you know, going from a very gritty inner city area to, you know, an area. I mean, some people, I've spoken to some people who seem to make the transition quite well, but, I mean, did you see people who, who just didn't make that sort of move? Absolutely. A lot, you know, the ones that move, that make a go of it, are usually the ones that are moving back. You know, they've um, grown up right. in the so they understand what they're coming to. Um, right. 
but I think the ones that come down and spend sort of you know a summer in Cornwall on their um, on, on leave, I think they're going to come down and spend their, their time sort of driving about eating ice creams and sort of checking yeah, out the local pasty shop. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, and, and uh, just the little the little difference as well, just the you know with promotion with getting on, you know having specialist teams you can jump into when you when you feel like it. There just aren't those opportunities with, with, mm. with the smaller forces. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of them just getting their head around the fact that. You know, they've moved down here for lifestyle, not for um, career, you know, career progression. Yeah. One of the be. one of the guys um, I used to work with in the when I was in special branch in London, and he was in the anti-terrorist branch. A really good guy. And he came originally came from sort of the northeast of England, sort of up Newcastle way, and uh, eventually he was really, really highly. I don't know if you listen to this, but um, uh, you'll know you'll know who I'm talking about. You know, but others will know who I'm talking about if um, if they are listening to this. Uh, he he was really well respected. Uh, he was like an exhibits officer in the anti-terrorist branch. He used to go out to all the bomb scenes and recover evidence and, uh, you know, take it to court. And I mean, really, really a super, super experienced detective. And um, and then he transferred to Northumbria police, but he got posted to the very far north of Northumbria, which is right up on the Scottish borders near Berwick and Tweed. And... Um, he literally was like, he had a police house, which was in the middle of nowhere. And I think there was him and a and one sergeant that covered something ridiculous, like 300 square miles or something ridiculous like that. And in the winter, it was absolutely freezing and, you know, pulling sheep out of snowdrifts and all of this. But he absolutely loved it. And I suppose it's because it was so different that um, it's like an adventure, isn't it? You know, doing something like it's a massive life-changing adventure. But um, anyway, so, I'm, um, so look, getting back to your early career. So posted to Tiverton, how long did you spend there? Pretty much most of my career, to be honest. Um, it was, like I say, I was living in Somerset. So Tiverton is the, um, is, is the first station, really, when you come into, when you come to Devon. Which also meant there were still stories of, um, you know, sort of from the Met, sort of how far can you go? So we were the um, we were the first station on the M5 as you come in. So you know, it wasn't right. un, you know, it wasn't unheard of for sort of um, Met police officers at three in the morning to pop up on a, on a Wednesday morning <laughs> to get their pocket notebook signed and stamped by the um, by the skipper. Oh God, I'd forgotten about all that stuff. Going yeah. On. yeah, so yeah, yeah so um, so anyone list anyone listening, um, it doesn't know. Basically, there was it wouldn't happen now. Definitely, definitely wouldn't no. happen now. Um, predominantly because of all sorts of GPS devices and radios and cars and everything, but it wasn't back in the day, um, particularly the Met. It was a bit of a bad habit for the Met, wasn't it, um, of seeing how far they could get on a night duty and getting back on time. And uh, there's a great story on that one where I think two or three traffic officers um, went down to Beachy Head uh, to watch the sun coming up or whatever over Beachy Head, and they got the cars all stuck in the mud. and. Uh, of course, they all dropped in the shit, didn't they? And then yeah. the other one, the other one was how quickly you could get around the M25 when it was first built. You know, yeah. it was literally racing around the M25, at, you know, trying to you know set the set the record. You know, so I don't uh, know whether it's an urban myth, but I heard the um, I heard that there was there was someone had to call up and try and get get themselves recovered from Calais. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how much truth on that one, but brilliant. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it's true. <laughs> oh God, funny, but um. Yeah, so how long did you spend uh, in that area then? Pretty much, like I say, most of my the, career. The whole, the whole um, time, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I say Exeter for us was only sort of 30 minutes away. So all our, you know, all, all local specialist teams were based there. So I had time on sort of comments with, with teams there. Um, but most of the time I ended up coming back to, to Devon. I had, I had time sort of on, on different sort of towns, but Timberton right. was pretty much where I was based. So I was, I was a neighbourhood officer there for a few years, running the town centre mm-hmm. um, and, 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 and response. So Okay. One of the specialists I had, though, was an, was an LPSM. And I, I don't think it's, it's that? something that's quite particular to Devon and Cornwall, lost person search manager. Um, oh, yeah, and right. they are effectively um, pulses. Um, but we sit un, under under pulses. Um, and we, we don't deal with crime and we don't deal with, with, with children. But we we run and coordinate the, um, the, the major incidents or the search and rescue operations. Right, OK. So the, the issue we had of Devon and Cornwall is obviously we've got the moors. We've got a lot of coastlines. So we have a lot of missing persons. Right, and not your traditional whisper inquiries, but sort of ones involving sort of you know, search and rescue groups. Right. Rescue okay. All oh, right. Okay. That's interesting. So I, I spend a lot of time involved with that, which is probably the one thing I do miss about the job, just being right. able to head off and. And, and was that was that a full time role? 
No, it wasn't. We were um, we were abstracted. So you know, we, we, if, if you're required, you'd be pulled off your regular duties, and you'd you'd, you'd be off. There's all they had the, the, the usual talk about setting teams up with a dedicated cadre yeah. of LPSMs. It would have been a good idea if we had the numbers, but we just didn't have the numbers to to be able to yeah. justify having the officers. So, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing you would have been working pretty closely with um, Coast Guard. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, I, do you, did you have such a thing as mountain rescue around Dartmoor, or was that? Oh, we do. No, absolutely. The um, you know, the mountain rescue are a, a big deal. You know, so on Dartmoor itself, there's off the top of my head, I think there's three, maybe four separate sort of um, organisations. Then you've got the Exmoor Search and Rescue, right. you've got the Bodmin, um, as you go down into Cornwall. Um, you have the Coast Guard, you have the RNLI. Um, then yeah. we, you know we dip into our partner services. We've got the heart team with the um, with the ambulance service. Right. The, um, it's know, proper multi-agency stuff. Absolutely. Right? And you know when, when we run it, you know obviously we take primacy for we we had primacy for running the team. So we didn't have any resources, but we were the ones we were the ones running it. So I'd be there, yeah. sort of um, coordinating and dealing with that. That's interesting. So this yeah. is walkers, climbers, canoeists. Um, windsurfers, God knows what. Uh, yeah, people who I mean, get, get into, um, but to, and to be honest. The, yeah, so to be honest, the majority of the work we did were people that had probably gone missing intentionally. Oh, really? Yeah. So you know that that put it in a little bit of an extra dimension to what we were doing. And, and was this through we through mental health issues? Yeah. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's a bit of a bit of a sad fact that sort of when people aren't feeling particularly well, they usually seek out places where they've had happy memories. And right. obviously, obviously, Devon and Cornwall is quite a popular holiday spot, so. That's sad, isn't it? Really, you know. But um, yeah. presum presumably, you had quite a lot of fatalities or suicides in those sort of places over the years. Yeah, yeah, we had a, we had, we had a few you know regular spots. I mean, obviously, Beachy Heads. A um, without sort mm. of turning this into a bit of a, mm. but you know, but yeah, you, 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 Beachy Heads probably local spot in the southeast there, and we had our our regular spots down here in the um in the southwest. So right, it's a lot, oh, of, lot, lot, lot of time in and around that terrain there. So yeah. Quite a distressing role, I would imagine, uh, for 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 all concerned, really, to have to do kind of body recovery in some of those very challenging um, locations as well. I would imagine. Yeah, no, that, that, that was exactly it. And, you know, the, the professionalism of the um, you know, our partner agencies and, and involved in those sort of um, operations was was pretty impressive. You know, I was quite humbled. On, you know, because most of the guys that come out that, that, that I'd be calling out were all volunteers. Really. You know, you know the, all the mountain rescue, all the coast guard. We're all volunteers, so getting them out and seeing seeing what they do and how they go about it was yeah 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 a lot of professionalism there, isn't it? Very da very dangerous job as well, and you know, and we've got all these people. That's the real unsung heroes, aren't they? These organisations all over the country and up and around the mountainous areas and the areas around the sort of coastal areas. You know, think of the RNLI. You think about the you think about the risks that these people are taking yeah. um, voluntarily at all hours of the day and night. It's really I mean, sometimes um, when you're in the police, uh, you kind of moan and groan about things. You know, we well, we moan and groan about things a lot in the police, I think. Mm. But um, at least you're getting paid, aren't you? You're getting paid. Yeah. Whereas a lot of these other people doing these jobs are taking the same and often greater risks um, and not getting paid. You just think, well, fair play to you, you know. But uh, so anyway, let's talk about your um, how it all sort of started to unravel then, because uh, clearly. You made a decision after 16 years, or in my case, 18 years, um, that um, uh, you decided it wasn't for you anymore. How did how did all that sort of come? Well, about? like I say, it all sort of started as usual. You know, sort of things sort of unraveled at home, really. Um, you know, mm. I, was, I, you know, I was separated from my my now ex-wife sort of six years ago, mm. and you know, people talk about sort of um 2020 when they talk about lockdown, sort of how how it was, but. For me, I was already locked down. Um, January that year, I had a, a what best described as a breakdown, really, and physically just mm. stopped. Mm. Um, and for me, that was probably my Damascene moment, really. I didn't know it at the time, um, but mm. that was really when things really changed. And the, and the thing with it is, what really struck me was that if you'd asked me half an hour before it happened if I was fine, I'd have said, "Yeah, everything's fine. I'm, you know, everything's being squared away at home." Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm settled in my new new place now, a new relationship. Um, mm. you know, work seems to be going well. You know, so I just just um, passed an assessment. I was looking at going on to a um onto a full time role that I'd been looking at for for a couple of years, mm -hmm. and then I physically stopped. I physically, you know, and it was really? um, God, yeah. that's that's scary. Yeah. And all it took was one chance conversation, and it was 
but I, I say I'm unfortunate, you know, I was with the police at the time because the mm. one thing the police do do is, you know, the support is there straight away. You know, there's none of this going on in NHS waiting list and the rest of it. So I was able to get in front of someone quite quickly right? Um, and, and, and start getting a few things sorted out. And it was only once everything had been put back into place and sort of sitting down mm. and looking back over it that it was burnout. And right. there's no two ways about it. It was just that. It was just so, too much going on, too many plates spinning. Um, yeah. And it was and it was looking back and all the signs were there. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so when, when, you know, I, I was told it was burnout. I had no idea what it was. It was only mm. when I started doing a bit of research myself. Mm. Like I say, all the signs were there. The yeah, yeah, the irritability, yeah. The, you know, the, the the brain fog, and and there was just so many. And looking back on it, there was so many times when you know, there could have been positive interventions that would have prevented what happened yeah. to me. And would have, you, you need know, to be so you need to be so vigilant, don't you? Um, yeah. And so, so that uh, so I've got my own experiences, you know, which I can draw on. So I do know what you're talking about. Um, in in the sense, and when, when it actually so when it actually happened, if you're okay talking about it, if you're not telling me to, fuck no, off, no, no, um, I'm, I'm, I'm know, more happy to share my stories. Okay. Exactly what, so, doing, so, so when when you actually had that moment when it when it when it all sort of stopped, so to speak, what what was what are your recollections of of what was going on in your head at that sort of time, at that moment in time when it? You know what? It was, it was just a really a tip, chance, like a tipping was, point. It was, I, I was it was just a really chance conversation. Um, I'd. I had a phone call. I pulled over. Um, it was my, my, my then sort of partner at the time calling. I pulled over to take the call, and I was literally sat in a lay-by, and we started talking about something. And then she mentioned something that I'd said the, the, the night before, um, mm. and it was just an innocuous little comment just about how I'd reacted to something. Mm. And then that just—it was literally like a hole just opened up, and I fell into it. Mm. And I remember her finding me half an hour later. Yes. You know, I, I don't know what happened in that, in that half an hour and taking me home. And for the next two weeks, I probably lost two weeks. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. Oh my God. Um, I just I remember periods of time sitting on the sofa shaking. Um, I remember forcing myself to eat, you know, a bit of toast in the morning. So I knew I hadn't eaten for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And everything was just was just spinning. And it was just my body telling me to stop. And, wow. I, 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 you know, and, and I'd been ignoring. I'd been ignoring everything. Yeah. Um, and it just literally dropped me on my ass. That is terrifying. Really yeah, terrifying. It, yeah. And, it, and, it, you know, it, and I think it was, yeah. And I look back on it. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, this is how it feels to be unwell. This is what it's like. This yeah. is how people are feeling. When I've you know, when sectioned people, this is yeah. how they must have been feeling. Yeah, yeah. And just yeah. understanding just how terrifying it must have been having people coming in. Because I had people sort of coming in and, Checking up on me, but that time I was living by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and then it's, uh, my... it's really, it's really um, terrifying to, to hear someone like you describe something like that because it, because it just makes you realize that it could happen to literally anyone, literally right. anyone. And, that, and that's what, if anybody thinks that it can't happen to them, I think they're completely deluding themselves, you know. And, you know, I can certainly think about the times when I was in a dark place, you know, through a combination of a marriage breakup, um, massive life changing events, sort of having to try and juggle um, child care in, in that backdrop of a, of a disintegrating marriage um, and then going to work. And I was a DI at the time, having to go to work and having to do what was by any definition a very stressful job. Um, you know, and I, I don't mind admitting that I, you know, I, I, you know, was probably, I didn't quite get to that point, but 100%, I think if I hadn't got the help that I needed, uh, at that time, at those times, um, I, I probably would have been describing something very similar. Yeah. And what was, and what was, what was nuts for me was, you know, I was coordinating, you know, major searches of guys that were exactly my demographic. You know, guys my age, you know, because the, a big part of the role was obviously working out why they were missing in the first place, because that dictates mm-hmm. sort of how you, you know, you're searching strategies mm-hmm. um, and, and how you're briefing your teams, what we're looking for. Because obviously, if someone doesn't want to be found, then we need to be sort of, um, you know, being a bit more, you know, a bit more covert about coming in. We're not, we're not blowing whistles and shouting for someone. Yeah, yeah. Having to be a bit more structured and, and sort of being a bit more, a bit more thorough with it, because yeah, you know, And so I was there, sort of looking at these guys that I'm, you know, looking at their profile, and you know, a couple of times it's sort of. 
well, you know, this is, well, this is me. Yeah, this, yeah, this, is is me. My, this, this is my age. The guy's gone through the same sort of issues I have. Um, the only difference well, it's is, now, it's now, I, I'm, I may be wrong with the statistic, but I don't think I am. I mean, you might, you might be able to, um, you'd understand the stats maybe better than me, but um, my understanding is that it's now, suicide is now the most common cause of death for men, um, you know, around the age of 40, I think, you know, somewhere between sort of 35 and 45 or something like that, you know, which is a, yeah, which is I, a I, really I think, terrifying thought. No, and I think it? you hit it down on the head again when you spoke about sort of, um, you know, being in our positions where you find all of a sudden you're, you're, you're at an age where you thought your life was going to be one way. You, mm. you, you know, you, you thought you're going to be, you know, together forever, you know, raising mm. a family, it was going to be sure. a family unit. And all of a sudden you're in your, you know, you're, you're the age you're at and your entire life has been tipped upside down. Um, yeah. You're having to reinvent yourself and start yeah. again from scratch. And I, what yeah. I would say is, you know, don't underestimate the power of change to disrupt sort of, um, you know, just your, your whole sense of being. Equal, sense equilibrium, of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that was, you know, that was a, a real common theme with, you know, with the people we were finding. I mean, mm. You know, it's difficult. I mean, part of the job we, you know, we 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 know about is obviously, you know, dealing with sudden deaths, and, and you know, a lot of them are intentional. Mm. And you know, and one common theme with most of the guys that we sort of um we dealt with was um that that just not being able to deal with change. You know, the, the massive yeah. change that happened in their life, yeah. or they found themselves sort of drifting and not really so about, you know being in control of what they're doing. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's where they ended up. Yeah, I think for me the warning signs. Um, I put a post on. I'm quite happy to talk about. Yeah. I put a post on LinkedIn, not LinkedIn, on Facebook, on the Tango Juliet Fox Facebook um, site um, a couple of weeks ago, where I basically was groveling, made a groveling apology for not having been terribly good at keeping up the weekly tempo of episodes. And the, the simple reason for that was because I was feeling overwhelmed at the time. You know, I'm okay now, actually. It's amazing how, uh, you know, quick, just by a few subtle changes, you can, you can actually get things back on track. But if you don't make those changes quickly, oh, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're ab in absolutely. And you know, this is exactly what I'm all about, you know. So I can start sort of um, putting my um my, my coach um, hat on now. And just, you know, don't underestimate the change of just taking a pause, taking a break, and giving mm -hmm. yourself a chance just to sort of rest and refit before you um before you go back at it again. You know, yeah, definitely. You know, the idea that we should just be able to sort of turn up every day and and and, and you know expect yeah, to perform yeah. at optimum just yeah, isn't yeah. realistic. Yeah, life's a roller coaster, isn't it? And you're going you're no, to exactly have periods. That. You're going to have periods of time when you are overwhelmed, whether that's overwhelmed because of um, family issues. It could be childcare. It could be aging aging parents. It could be anything. It could be financial. It could be work. It could be a combination of all of those things. But I think for me, um, it's when when I start to feel myself feeling uh, o overreacting, probably. And so the the checklist for me, I suppose, would be overreacting to fairly trivial um, things that I would normally just take in my stride. Um, sometimes feeling a bit dissociated. So by that, I mean, um, standing in a room, almost staring into space and thinking, I've no fucking clue what I'm doing here. I've no idea why, what I'm going to do next. I don't remember why I came in here. Um, just that sense of feeling a bit, a bit spaced out. I think that's the best way of describing it. Um, and, exactly. uh, and just gen and losing another big one for me is losing interest in the things that would normally you'd normally enjoy doing. Yeah. Um. You just think you just don't care really, you know. And I'll, and I'll add getting a little bit obsessive about something else as well. You know, so you can lose, like I say, you lose interest in sort of in relationships and in your life. But then, you know, a lot, a lot of guys also become quite obsessive about something. Yeah. Whether it's you know whether it's work, whether mm. it's um exercise. So and it's and it's always a tough one because we, we you know we again, for me it was exercise. I mean my my mm. bag when I was growing up I used to row, um, and so I've, I've got I've got a rowing machine. Anyone that knows about rowing machines understands what a horrible piece of kit they are. Yeah, yeah. And for yeah. me I just used it to thrash myself. Um, mm. You know the, the you know the, the times I was pulling out of it. You know when I was going through all the nonsense. You mm. know I was at one point I was sort of looking at sort of um cracking on with some sort of um record attempts because I was, I was putting the miles in. And literally just rowing myself into the ground. And, oh well, and Andrew Marr, the BBC presenter, had a stroke on a rowing machine, didn't he? He pushed himself to the point. He was obviously quite an obsessive, uh, you know, in terms of his exercise regime. And he ended up having uh, a massive stroke, I think, as a result. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and, that, and that's hard, a big thing. It's that, you know, we, we, you know, we, we talk, you know, people talk about, you know, disengaging from, from, from life. Um, but but a, a big indicator to watch out for is someone that's getting a little bit too obsessive, you know. You know, probably a little bit too involved with work. Um, like I say, it was all of a sudden 
find themselves you know, exercising yeah. obsessively. Yeah. And, so let's yeah. talk about your, um, I suppose, for want of a better word, your recovery from that horrible situation. So um, presumably you had some time off work. Is that right? No, I did. Yes, I had um, had about three months off in the end, all, all in. Probably came back a little bit too soon because mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, being who we are, we want to sort of make sure that we're back in there and we're letting anybody down. Um, so I came back a little bit too soon and then had another little period of time off. Um, and for me, <clears throat> that was when um, they put me on to EMDR. Um, and I know that for some, a lot of people, it's, it, it doesn't work very well. But for me, it was an absolute sorry, revelation. Sorry, what's EMDR? Um, it's the... The, the rapid eye movements, sort of. Um, oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, sort of. I'm de- dealing with that. It's sort of. It's, it's a quite a common um, therapy for, for PTSD and CPTSD. Right. Um, and it's just a way of sort of, and it, they just it just talks about unlocking sort of traumas and being able to finally process them because obviously the, the idea around PTSD is that you know that the traumatic experience isn't filed away. It's there um, every day. You're reliving it, and you're just unable to process anything else because it's it's at the forefront of your um your thought and your brains. Um, so the MDR for me was like going to a chiropractor um, and having your back cracked. So I walked in, sort of all bent over, got my back cracked, and all of a sudden I was it, it was like the, the tide just receded and everything just went from hazy to HD. And really, that's and that, that 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 clarity that gave me. Um, so did you get diagnosed with PTSD? If you don't, no, they talked about PTSD type symptoms, um, right. but but what sort of um came then it was obviously speaking with the psychologist that we had. They said it's Probably, we'll probably see PTSD if we're going to look at anything, but the reality is it's more burnout. The stuff you, you know, the stuff you describe, you're just overwhelmed. Um, and so, and it's, it's difficult because you get a little bit sort of bogged down with labels. Um, and the symptoms are all very, very, very similar. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I think looking looking at it and just sort of how everything was, I think burnout would probably be the, um, the easiest way to describe what went on and, and, and how it was. It was just, you know, I mean, I mean we talk about our, our shit boxes and my, all my shit boxes were just full. Yeah, yeah. They, they weren't. They weren't being emptied. Yeah, so, yeah. In, a, in, a, in a wonder, they were. They were emptied. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, you know what I find um, <clears throat> completely turned the ship around for, for me a few weeks ago it was because I've, I've I've bored everyone rigid talking about my overwhelmingly uh, long lived building project going on in the house that's just just stressing everybody out. Um, we literally um, pulled up the drawbridge and and created a little bubble of peace, calm, and cleanliness in one part of the house, and no one else is allowed in there other than sort of people who we want in there. In other words, builders aren't allowed in there. Um, you know, it's all clean, it's all tidy, um, and just having that sort of little bit of order around your living space without constantly bumping into builders every time you walk out of the you know every room you go into there's someone in there doing something yeah. it drives you mad so just that that for me was uh it's like a little sanctuary you've created a little bubble of peace and cleanliness uh where it's almost now i don't actually care what else is going on around the rest of the house because i can just come back into that little sanctuary you know what i mean yeah and it is and it's just working out what what works for you um, you know, and it's just been able to disengage um, and, and give yourself that chance just to rest, rest and refit. Really, you know, some some guys will take themselves off and, and go fishing and stare at a canal for for four hours. Mm. Um, it's, it's it's not about the fishing; it's just about that 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 time to to spend. Other guys would go to the gym. They find that sort of that, that that's their space. They can just worry about what they're doing. They have got their program. They got what the, you know the, the the building and what they're building on, and they yeah. they can focus on that. It's just it's just about that ability to be able to disengage from from life, from what's you know what's causing issues, because stress is normal, and we you know, we all have it. It's it's a normal part of life, and it's not so much it's not looking at sort of eliminating stress. It's about learning how to manage it, um, and learning what works for you, what doesn't, um, which is a real big part of what I do. I mean, it's it's difficult because the what one thing people sort of ask me is you know do, you know do I offer um, group coaching sessions, and the answer is is no, and the reason for that. Is that it's just we, you know we talk about sort of working on people's personal resilience and it's just such a personal thing. Yeah. But if we are really going to drill down and, and look at what works for you, what you know what's what's causing the issues, people aren't. If, you know, if you've got sort of a half dozen people sat in front of you, you're going to have half a dozen different reasons, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and half a dozen different different strategies. And yeah. so yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about. Um, so obviously you had some time off work. 
but then uh, given that you ended up leaving, I'm guessing that uh, that didn't work out or you just made a decision that you want. So how did, what was the, what was the, how long did it take between you going back to work and actually then ultimately leaving the police altogether? Probably two years. Uh, two years. Right, up. Right, yeah, okay. two years. And it was more a case. Um, one, one thing we talk about is, you know, we talk about post-traumatic stress, but we also talk about post-traumatic growth. Mm. And I think for me, what it really did was just give, gave me that opportunity to finally sit down and have a little bit of space and work out what I wanted to be doing in, for the next 10 years. Um, you know, we obviously we get to an age where, you know, the finish line sort of hoping into sight. And mm. we have to really start thinking, you know, what, what do I want to look back and say I've done? And, you know, and, you know I'm, I'm going to be 50 in, in, in a couple of years. Mm. Um, and it was a more a case of, it wasn't a case I didn't want to be a police officer. And I still enjoy the job. And it had, had, had its frustrations. But there wasn't anything about it that was exciting me anymore. I could have mm. quite, you know, I was, I, was, I was a good police officer. You know, I had mm. no issues with that. Um, <clears throat> but I, in order to start pushing on, and it just probably would have taken more effort than I was prepared to give it, to be honest. Yeah, I just yeah, wasn't, yeah. the motivation just wasn't there anymore. Yeah, and, and you didn't want to turn into one of This is what I wanted to be doing. You didn't want to turn um, into so, one of those people who just hangs in there for the pension eventually. That's no life, is it? No, no, and you can't, and you know what? And it was conversations, and around what I'm doing is, I started just having conversations with people, just asking about sort of um, stresses and you know guys my age. And I had a couple of very, very pertinent conversations um, with, with, with a very good friend of mine that's sadly no longer with us now. Um, and you know he had quite a catastrophic diagnosis about sort of um, four or five years ago, mm. and has lived with that up until a year ago. And just talking to him, you know, he's, he's my age, very successful businessman. Um, and just talking mm. to him about his regrets and what he wish he'd done differently, um, and you know, and so you know, the, you, you, and you can't be planning for you know this fictitious future in, in, in ten years. You can't be saying, look, I'm going to I'm going to tough it out for for another six years and then take my pension because you've got no guarantees for that six years. That's right. You know, yeah. uh, and we we're not guaranteed that that that, that future, no. but we are guaranteed today. Yes. And we just need to be getting on, making sure that we're living now and we're not sort of you know putting off our yeah, putting yeah. off, your, future for, putting for off your happiness for something that might never be, you know. No, and that, and that, that's it. Yeah. So, um, obviously, there was a gradually a, a dawning realization that that uh, something outside the job beckoned um, in preference to being in the police. So, did you do some preparation for that in terms of training and courses and things like that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting one because. The, um, the, the life coaching space is a it's, it's obviously un unregulated, um, and there are a lot of courses out there. Uh, I sort of spoke to a few guys I knew that were sort of involved in it, and it just seemed to me that a lot of what, the, what they were offering for the basic levels was stuff I'd already done. All I would be doing is certifying what I already knew. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with it, the, the other thing with coaching is too, people employ people they like and people they trust. Yeah, And I think you can, you know, I think it's one of those professions where you can have as, you know, all the course behind you that you like. If you don't really know what you're talking about, then it's not worth the paper yeah. they're written on. Um, yeah. And so, like I say, I was drawing on my, my coaching background with some basic coaching principles, but I think it was just really properly understanding the issues around burnout and mm -hmm. being able to articulate what happened to me and knowing what would have made a difference to me and being able mm -hmm. to sort of push that on to other people. Um, yeah, so, well, I've... I mean, I find it, a fa you know, I'm finding it a fascinating conversation and um, very reassuring, actually, um, Zane, very reassuring because it makes you realise, I mean, I don't, I'm not one of those people that, that um, believes that people having mental health issues uh, is a weakness. I 100% don't believe that because I've experienced it myself and I don't think I'm a weak person. And I think I'm a very strong person, but, but everyone has their breaking point don't they everyone and um you know anyone who who thinks that they have said this before on previous podcasts anyone who is sitting, is sitting there smugly thinking oh yeah well I'll, that'll never happen to me i'd say well you know what just you just wait and see let's just wait and see eh? half an hour before i collapsed i'd have been exactly that person mm -hmm. i'd have been telling you that yeah, I know that's that's mad, isn't it? Yeah. So um, so anyway, when you left, was that how did you feel? Was that an emotional experience leaving, or were you kind of quite sort of relieved? Yeah, I and mean, then the plan had always been to sort of try and build this up, um, and then you know, and, and then leave once once this has started coming on. <clears throat> but I very quickly realised that the headspace that I needed to be able to give this one hundred percent 
I wasn't able to give it if I was still coming in, still doing shift work, still dealing with the office politics, dealing with the job, with all the issues that I had. I just wasn't able to give it the space. So I had a, had a, had a conversation with, with a few people and just took the decision. I need to be doing this full time. And yeah, so it was yeah, a, a two-line resignation email. Right. Um, and then did, did anybody try and persuade you to stay or were they sort of did they <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> you know what there's people that said they're going to miss me but they, you know but the reality is you know they everyone's could, they could see that they could see that you were done yeah that. yeah but but everyone knew and and you know and the, you know, had, had my i would say it wasn't i mean my ex interview didn't exist it was a um it was a tick box exercise on sharepoint um and the last box was do you want anyone to contact you to discuss the issues that you've raised and so that was a resounding no um, um and, uh, because the, the other thing is too you, you don't want to be that guy that leaves and is, is, is moaning and carrying on because for every, every you know the, the conversation i was having when i when i knew i was leaving everyone so there's no point in me trying to rehash all the same frustrations that we have with the job because yeah. you can walk into any nick in the country and and see a me sat there and have exactly the same conversation exactly um, so and, that, and then there's just absolutely no point um yeah. i mean the, the, the boss the inspector um big, big shout out to, to, to grant um top bloke just sort of he understood the frustrations i had um and you know he was quite open about sort of you know we sat down and actually had a you know, had an hour where we had a cup of coffee and chewed the fat put the world to rights and um yeah well i think uh i think you're in very good company zen i mean and tomorrow actually i'm i'm chatting to um is it tomorrow mm. anyway either tomorrow or friday i can't check my diary uh to jill crocker and i jill's was, was doing a lot of work with uh, people who are transitioning out of the yeah. police. I don't know if you've come across. Oh, yeah, I've come across. Oh, yeah, I, I know Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's been an interesting conversation. But um, so let's uh, talk about your your business. How's that? How's that been? I mean, it's uh, you know still relatively early days, I suppose, isn't it? Very early days. Yes. So um, yeah, just pulling everything together. Um, I'm looking at offering um, sort of um, keynote speaking as well. So I've, last couple of weeks I've been pulling together. You know, sort of a, a 20 minute TED talk type on it and a, um, and a 50 minute keynote. Um, and I think and my, my, my biggest issue is I've probably got too much stuff to say, um, just mm. with you know, lived experiences, so the stuff I've come across, people I've been speaking to. You know, I've got a, um, when we, we talk about our, our blue book at work, I've got my, my black yeah. book <laughs> just full yeah. of jottings and sort of musings yeah, yeah. and sort of ideas. Um, so, yeah, so the new year, the, the idea is to sort of really start hitting, hitting you know, with, with, with speaking as well. And you're obviously judging from some of your your LinkedIn posts. Um, you're obviously sort of keen, very keen on the outdoors, and sort of presumably the outdoor stuff is going to feature largely in what you're doing. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I've been growing up. I had a, you know, I, I say I, I joke about saying I grew up on Bolton Mountains in New Zealand. You know, I sort of you know brought up on a farm, had access to the mountains. Um, you know, I had four, you know, Land Rovers. I mean, obviously hunting is a bit of a unpopular um, subject in the UK, but I grew up being able to. Mm-hmm. Been a weekend up in the up in the mountains. I'm um, hunting if I wanted to. It was just right. it was just something we did. You know, surf life saving was a big part of what I did when I was growing up rugby. Um, so yeah, I've just been able to get out. And we're quite lucky in the southwest, obviously, with the with what we've got here on our doorstep. So I think if I hadn't been down this part of the world, I probably would have been home a bit, a bit earlier. So so obviously, um, the t- the name of your company, the Shared Man, is self evidently uh, geared towards men as opposed to women. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm making that assumption. Is that would that be correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. you're quite right. I mean, obviously, when we when we go into business, we have to talk about looking at niches mm-hmm. um, and niching down to who we want to talk with. And you know, I'm, I'm a man of a certain age. I've been through certain experiences, and I just mm-hmm. think it resonates with other men of you know the similar age with you know in, in similar situations. Yeah. And it's not saying I won't you know I, I can't I won't speak with um with women, but I think I'd be a little bit of a fraud to try and think that I can understand you know you know walking in their shoes. Yeah. Um, well, you've whereas, got a huge amount, uh, a huge amount of credibility. Um, you know, you are, uh, you've got lived a lot of life. Uh, you've you've dealt with a lot of things that most people will never deal with. Um, uh, yeah, and you can speak, you can speak, you know, from the heart and to talk, talk with, uh, you know, that lived that expression everybody's using now, isn't it? The lived yeah. experience, you know, that so. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's two other podcast guests who I've had, had on that immediately spring to mind. I think you should probably um, have a conversation with uh, Hannah Bailey, who's uh, Blue Light Wellbeing. She she is an ex-police officer who's doing uh, a lot of work around wellbeing. 
Uh, and Martin Brennan, um, who's an ex-colleague of mine, Martin is doing stuff very similar to what you're doing um, after he had quite a catastrophic health issue as a result of being burnt out. And he ended up having, now I'm going to probably murder the facts here, but um, basically ended up having, I think, something akin to a stroke, very serious, um, and, and epileptic fits and very, very, very seriously ill uh, and ended up uh, setting up a quite a similar thing to you but in a different part of the UK. So I just wonder, is there something that collectively you guys could do together, you know, cooperate and collaborate on, on stuff? There's, you know, I think there's got, there's got to be opportunities there. I, I uh, absolutely. And I think I'm aware of both of them, actually. So right, okay. yeah, certainly be reaching back out again to them and, and having a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm given that for the last three years, I've been working in, um, you know, the private sector, uh, a conversation costs nothing, does it? You know, and no. a conversation over a coffee on on a on a Zoom or a Skype call or whatever. And I'm a great believer that every single person you speak to, um, you're gonna you can learn something from absolutely everyone, doesn't it? Can't you? So, so yeah, I think there's definitely something something there. But um, yeah, so um, in terms of your personal life, I know you don't mind me asking, is that also settled down a bit? And no, absolutely no, and that, and that's. A big part of why I'm able to do what I'm doing now. Um, I'm finally settled. The, the children are both at um, secondary school now. So all of a sudden, I'm not sort of um, dad's taxi and having to spend my whole day sort of hovering over them when they're sort of running around. They, they're, they're quite independent now, great kids. Mm. So it's just nice. And it's, and it's just been able to build something for them. And a, a big motivation for it as well was, you know, I, you know, I had the children with me sort of um, half the time. Yeah. So and just being able to have that flexibility now to be able to pop down, you know, even when they're with their mum, still being able to pop down and watch them with their sports. Yeah. Um, the, you know, they're both kicking on very well, very well with that. I mean, the, mm. the daughter, she's, you know, she's, <clears throat> her netball is, um, is really taken off now. She's, she's involved with Team Bath now with your academy. And right. so you know, all of a sudden I'm <laughs> all over the place with, with, with that. But no, but it's yeah. just nice to finally be able to re-engage properly as a, as, as a father. Yeah. And, 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 and as a friend, be able to say yes now to those social engagements, you know, whereas, yeah. You know, yeah. weekends, you know, I was never, I either, I either had the children or I was working, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big, a big guilt thing, isn't it? For a lot of parents who are going through separations and divorces, isn't it? That oh, they end, absolutely. End up, you're in this, certainly, I can only speak for myself, but you're in this situation where you know what you need to be doing as a parent, but sometimes because of the situation, you're just feeling so emotionally overwhelmed by everything that you just don't feel that you're sufficiently present for them does that make I sense i know and, and it's that it's that guilt that you know sort of just you know because the relationship with you know with their mother is broken down you know you, yeah. you, you, you pitch them into this world as well and that, yeah, that, yeah. Just that, that massive feeling of guilt around that it's, yeah it's, but i suppose what i would say is um you know having been through that myself my my i've got two young kids now but my older kids are my oldest is 30 and um you know i've got a son of 24 and you know and they're both absolutely fine you know i think kids are incredibly resilient with all of this kind of stuff and um and the sad reality is, of course, that most of their friends at school, their parents, unfortunately, it was maybe a, a slightly weird subset of friendship groups that they were in, but an awful lot of their friendship friends at school were going through very similar stuff. So it's not like 20, 30 years ago when, when that stuff was actually quite unusual, wasn't it? No, and I've, and I've been quite lucky. I mean, obviously, you know, the mother and I, we had our disagreements about some things, but we've been you know, absolutely on the same page when it comes to the children. So, mm. you know, and I think that's just, that's, you know, for that, I'm, I'm always grateful, so. Yeah, yeah. Listen, my friend, um, thanks a million for giving up your time to chat to me. I've, I find it really fascinating. I find it really helpful, actually. Um, you know, uh, you can send me the invoice and uh, if I... <laughs> <laughs> a bit of free counselling. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, I really take my hat off to you. I wish you the very best. I hope the business um, thrives and prospers. And uh, if you need any advice, uh, you know, from me about other ask my experience of working in the private sector or whatever, um, yeah, you know where I am. So just uh, drop me a, a line, and we can no, fantastic. We can have a chat, and yeah, I think we might be maybe speaking again in the next, the next, the next, next little bit. I think. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. And as I said, Martin, I don't. I mean, I. Uh, I know Hannah listens to this. Um, uh, I don't know if Martin does because um, he's. Some people who come on this just don't listen to. It. You know, they, they go, "What's a podcast?" You know, I think <laughs> I think Martin might have been one of them. But uh, but no, I think Martin and Hannah would be really good contacts for you. And uh, yeah, it'd be really interesting. I think if you 
if you picked up a big a piece of work that was too big for one person to manage then i think uh, you would you would all sort of uh, work really well together i think so. no I, I think that's absolutely the way forward i think you know we, you know the more, the more this can happen the better i think definitely all right my friend listen you take care and uh, enjoy the rest of your day Ian, thanks for having me cheers in all the best okay. bye bye bye